Well, let's jump right in. Follow me for verses 1 and 2. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, this epistle is written generally to a group of Christians. It's not specifically addressed to a church like Ephesus or Colossae. And and it's one that probably Jude intended to be circulated from church to church. And it's interesting for us, before we jump into the text, to note how Jude addresses himself at the beginning of the epistle. Now, Jude, if you don't know, his name is uh, also short for Judas. He was Jesus' half-brother. Half-brother to Jesus and brother of James, who was also the half-brother of Jesus. And and he does not appeal to his standing as the half-brother of Jesus at the beginning of his letter. Now, let me ask you something. If you were half-brother or sister of Jesus Christ, and you were writing a letter to other Christians, wouldn't you say, hey everyone, it's me, the brother of Jesus, writing you a letter. Right? You, you, would, you would appeal to that. That's a big deal. Right? You are, you are the son of God's family, right? Growing up with this guy. And yet, Jude doesn't say that. In fact, he calls himself a slave or a servant of Jesus, which shows us just how much Jude understood his position in relationship to Christ. Right? He could have reminded everyone that he was, in fact, Jesus' half-brother. That he grew up as a little boy, side by side with Jesus. He could have exalted himself and gave himself a position of authority by that fact alone. And yet, he instead points people to the fact that he is a servant of Christ. Can you imagine, I want you to think of your siblings, if you have them, brothers or sisters, Can you imagine growing up with that person your whole life and then thinking, that's my master, right? Some of you are thinking about your siblings right now going, no way, right? Not going to be the master of me. And yet Jude acknowledges the divinity of Christ, the fact that it doesn't matter that Jude is the family. It doesn't matter that he's Jesus' half-brother. It's the testimony of Jude that to, to exalt the divinity of Christ, to say that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and Lord of all. And I am simply his servant. And in these few words, Jude reminds us just how we should view our own lives in light of our relationships to Jesus. Jesus is not there to serve you. He already did that. We have the great privilege to call ourselves servants or slaves to Jesus Christ himself. And so as we continue on in verse 1, at the second part, we see this beautiful description that Jude gives of the believer. And he uses three different words. And these descriptions should remind us of what being a real Christian means. He says that we are called, we are beloved, and we are kept. Called, beloved, and kept. 
These are absolutely beautiful words that Jude uses to describe a follower of Christ. He said, we are called by God out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are beloved in God the Father, his children, to whom he has shown his great love through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then he says that we are kept not only by Jesus, but we are kept for Jesus. No one can snatch us from the palm of his hand. And we are kept so that we can be presented to him on the last day as his bride, pure and faultless and without spot. That's Jude's greeting to his followers and the people that were reading this letter. And in this greeting, he defines succinctly who Christians are. Servants of Jesus Christ, called of God, beloved of the Father, and kept for Jesus. What an incredible description for us this morning of who we are as His beloved children. Now in the remaining verses... Verses 3 through 16 is what we're going to be looking at for the rest of our time. Jude tells us that he had wanted to write about our common salvation, but instead must make an appeal to Christians to contend for the faith because false teachers had made their way into the church. And Jude is reminding all believers that even though false teachers might be in our midst right now, that our call is to remain steadfast in the truth of God's word. So let's look with me at verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to you to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Now in 1993, uh, Dr. Albert Moeller became the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And when he first arrived on campus, things there in Louisville were not very good. You would have actually found very few Bible-believing faculty members at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in those days. Very few that would have believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. And very few that would have believed the fullness of what the Bible taught about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Many of these faculty members were making shipwrecks of the faith of the men and women that went to study there. And when Al Mohler went to that school, the first sermon he preached in the chapel to the faculty and the students was entitled, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. I said it right. Don't just do something, stand there. You see, for years, the liberals that had invaded the Southern Baptist Convention had been saying, let's not talk about theology and doctrine. Let's just do missions. Let's just preach the word. But Dr. Moeller's message was totally different. He said, it doesn't matter if we go out there and don't have a message that actually saves We need to not just do something. We need to stand there first. Stand on the Bible. Stand on the truth of God's word. 
Stand firm on the gospel. Stand on what the Bible says about who Jesus is. We need to believe that first. And then we can go out and do something about it. And really for us, church, this morning, Jude's message is a very similar message. He's calling for us to be lovingly contentious Christians. He's calling for us to be people with conviction. With conviction about the faith that was delivered to us. To be people who care about the truth. And stand firm on the truth of God's word. Who believe in the truth and teach that truth to those who need it. So that's Jude's first point this morning. We as followers of Jesus Christ are called to care about the truth of God's word. To be passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he tells us why in verse 4. Look with me. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude is saying, here is why I'm writing to you. Because there are people in your own congregation who call themselves Christians who say that their teaching is Christ's, but they're leading you astray. And notice the two things that they're teaching. It says that they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They do two things. They pervert grace and use it as an excuse to live lives of sin. They take what God has given them, the beautiful, precious gift of grace, and they use it as a license for immorality. And secondly, they deny Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. The very thing Jude did at the very beginning of his letter. He said, I am the servant. Jesus is the Master. They deny what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is in his person and work. They say it doesn't matter how you live as long as you're sincere. As long as you call yourself a Christian, that you prayed a prayer, that you came forward and and you tell everyone, I'm a follower of Christ. It doesn't actually matter what you live or what you believe about Christ. And Jude is saying this morning that that is absolute garbage. He's urging us to contend for the faith against these false teachers who use grace as a license for sin and who deny that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Furthermore, he reminds us that these people are in every church. And Jude is telling us to be to beware, to recognize who they are And what they're doing. Jesus gives us a very similar message in the book of Matthew. Why don't you turn there? Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. 
Matthew 7, 15 through 20, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Paul is going to give us the same warning, the warning that he gives to the elders in the church of Ephesus. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Church, there are false teachers everywhere. Some of these might be on your bookshelves or on your podcasts, on your phone, or bookmarked as web pages on your computer. They might be people that you unknowingly are following and putting your trust in. And we must learn to be discerning because these false teachers have one goal, to lead you astray from the truth of God's word, from the hope of the gospel. Jude is telling us this morning that we need to care deeply about the truth, to cling to the truth, to believe the truth, to remember that the truth is not relative even though our culture might say it is. We need to know enough about the truth of God's word to be able to tell a false teacher from a faithful prophet. And the only way for us to do that is for us to be people who are utterly dependent upon God's word, who hide the word of God in our hearts. So let's look at verses 5 through 8. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Jude proceeds to give us three Old Testament examples of God's judgment against sin. And Jude does this so that we have a warning. So that those who are teaching these false doctrines have a warning that if they continue in this, that God will bring judgment upon them. 
He's telling these examples to convince, to convince you that God will finally judge those who are leading his people astray. Now, on these three examples, we first have the Israelites in the wilderness. Then we have the angels who followed Satan, the fallen angels. And then thirdly, we have the situation with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you remember the Israelites in the wilderness, right? A people who were brought out of Egypt and saved from slavery and bondage. But many of those people, after being redeemed, did not believe. And they die in the wilderness. Their unbelief and disobedience leads to their destruction. And so Jude says, he destroyed those who did not believe. What was their sin? Their sin was unbelief. Then his second example are the fallen angels. How are they described in this passage? It's it's very interesting, actually. He says that they did not stay within their own position of authority and left their proper dwelling. They sought a station and position which God had not given them. They exalted themselves to a place that they didn't deserve or weren't called to. So what was their sin? It was pride. And then his third example is Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 7, he says that they indulged in sexual immorality. And Jude says that that was a picture of the judgment that was awaiting all those who are immoral. What was their sin? Immorality. Sexual immorality in particular and so I want, to, I want you to notice that Jude is giving us three different examples from the Old Testament. One of unbelief, one of pride, and one of sexual immorality. And he says this is exactly how these false teachers are. This is exactly how you can tell who they are and what they're doing. You see, he's setting up his congregation. He's setting up these believers to be able to see that by their fruits you shall know them. By the way that they live, by the things that their life is producing, you can tell a false teacher from a true teacher. And then he gives us this really interesting contrast in verses 9 and 10. Let's look at it. He says, But when the angel Mike, archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. These false prophets were claiming to teach new things about Christ, and in the process were promoting their own immorality. They were rejecting God's authority and were claiming to have such spiritual power that they could command and condemn angelic beings. And yet Jude is saying that even the archangel Michael doesn't have that authority. Now, Several years ago, there was a television preacher who got up on the stage and was recounting his experience of the demonic. And his story went like this. He said, I was present in the room 
And the demonic force came in and the temperatures of the room dropped to sub-zero levels and everything began to frost over and the furniture began to levitate. And I, I addressed that spirit and I told him to get out. And he fled through the window at my command. And the furniture fell back to the floor and the temperature returned to its norm. But then this preacher says, but then I leaned out the window and I yelled to the spirit, you come back here. I haven't finished with you yet. You've got to clean this mess up. Now, this guy thought he was being clever for his audience. And I'm sure his story was impressive to those followers that believed it. But all it told me was that he knew nothing about demonic forces. It told me that he was so arrogant that he thought he could command judgment on a demon. And he took the rightful place of God in that moment. Because not even the archangel Michael had the audacity to do that. You see, friends, for us, contending for the faith and casting judgment is a tricky line to walk sometimes. Because often we act like contending needs to be judgment. And yet God said that I am the only judge. I am the one who will bring judgment on those who are false teachers. It's not our job to enact judgment on these false teachers and these people who are bringing uh, disobedience into the church. It is simply our job to point them back to Christ and to tell them the truth and to speak that truth in love. You see, the point is for us that God's grace in our lives must produce trust and humility and holiness. If we're followers of Christ, we're growing in these areas. Trust and humility and holiness. And yet in the lives of these kinds of false teachers that Jude is talking about, their their attitudes don't show up as as that. They don't show up as humble people, trusting and, and believing in God and His Word, living lives of holiness. Instead, they have unbelief and pride and immorality. And that is the proof for us that a teacher's life isn't, or a teacher's teaching isn't from God. That's the proof for us. That those who claim to be followers of Christ, that are preaching His Word, that are telling you and pointing you to Jesus, they need to be people who, who are exhibiting these kinds of characteristics. Because there are many who claim to be true teachers of God. Faithful teachers of the Bible, and yet they have no relationship with Christ. They don't even know God. And yet they'll promise you miracles, riches, the ability to control demons, or special gifts from above. But how do you know a false teacher from a true one? By their fruits, you will know them. The spiritual fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Jude reminds us again in verses 11 through 13 that judgment is coming. Look with me. He says, Woe to them! 
For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now the second thing that Jude wants to teach us this morning is quite simple. That your life shows your heart. A person's life shows the heart that is within them. And so Jude's point is that false prophets can be identified by their character and their actions and their attitudes. And he gives us nine different illustrations in verses 11 through 13 to describe these false teachers. First of all, he says that they've gone the way of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. You remember Cain, right? The unloving, unfaithful man who killed his own brother? A man thought he was more righteous than, than everyone else? And he says, these false teachers have slandered those who are more righteous than themselves. We're just like Cain. We kill to exalt ourselves. And he says, they're also like Balaam. You remember the prophet that the enemies of Israel tried to hire against Israel to curse them. Right? This guy was hired to apply his own prophetic gift against Israel. You see, Jude is saying these false teachers are all, they're in it for the money. They're in it to get rich. They're teaching what they're teaching so they can make a buck. So, uh, by the way, uh, it's a good idea uh, if you're listening to someone and they're pleading with you for money, uh, they're nine times out of ten, they're going to be a heretic, right? Uh, if somebody is asking, if you're watching TV and the guy's up there asking you for money, He's in it for his own gain. He, he wants his new Learjet or a boat trip to the Bahamas. I don't know, whatever it may be. I'm not naming names. You can discern, right? And, and yet, God's people, God's teachers, aren't in it for the money. Right? I can attest. We're not in it for the money. And then thirdly, Korah, the guy who rebelled against Moses' authority and is eventually judged by God against someone who rejects divine appointed authority. See, Korah decided that he didn't like Moses' authority. He didn't want Moses to be the guy in charge, so he led a rebellion. But the irony is that God was the one who appointed Moses in the first place. So he wasn't rejecting Moses' authority, he was rejecting God's. And these are just a few of the characteristics that describe these false teachers. But Jude isn't finished yet. He's going to give us six more metaphors in verses 12 through 13 for what these people are like. He says, they're stains in your love feasts. Now, I think of a love feast, I think of coming as a family 
to the table of communion. And he said, these teachers, they defile that. They make it ugly. They inject impurity into the life of the church. And he says, they're also shepherds who feed themselves. They're self-serving. They're looking out for number one and putting you further down on the list. He says, they're also clouds without water. Clouds that look full. We had these last week, right? You saw them come over town, big and black. They even made a lot of noise. But what happened? No water. No water came out. Just made it humid and gross. And he's saying, look, this, this looks, they look like they're bringing needed rain, needed refreshment. But instead, the rain never comes. That refreshment is never given. They don't produce. They promise, but they don't follow through. He said, they're trees without fruit. For you all, you apple growers in Ottawa, this is the worst, right? You water it all summer. You're so excited. The fall, the blooms start happening, and you think, oh, I'm going to have apples just in time for Thanksgiving and make apple pie. And you go out there, nothing. Right? Any of you have trees like that? Cut them down. Right? <laughs> we had this one tree in our yard on, on Canyon Drive, and it literally it had the biggest, beautiful blooms ever. Did it give you any fruit yet? Yes? Oh, okay. Well, it must have been that one year. Good. I was ready to take my axe and get out there and, you know, hack it down. But he's saying, look, these, these false teachers are like trees that don't produce any fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is not in their lives. He said they're like raging waves of the sea. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a sailor, but I, re- I like boats quite a bit. But you've ever walked on the seashore after a really big storm? And the ocean has raged and all the silt and all the junk from the bottom is floated to the top and washed along the shore? So that's what it's like. They stir up the filth and the impurity and they bring it to the top. Divisive, destructive, impure attitudes. Who crash like the waves and all that they do is bring about destruction. And then lastly, he says they're like wandering stars. They shine with light like a shooting star, but they're destined to burn out into oblivion. Right? A star that is fixed is shining. A star that is moving is going to die. Right? And so he's saying that this is the attitude of these kinds of false teachers. And the point is that their life shows their hearts. Your children learn what you live before them. And it's important for us to teach them with our words. But they mostly learn by watching you. They will learn from what you live before them. And no matter how loudly you teach, you will never be able to live down what you live out before them. Because that's what they'll learn more than anything else. And Jude is saying that a life 
for Christ shows that heart. And a life lived against Christ shows that heart. These false prophets are easily identifiable. And sometimes it only takes time. Now turn with me to verses 14 through 16. He says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain an advantage. So in verses 14 and 15, he quotes from a very interesting book. Uh, it's called the Book of Enoch. Uh, now, this book is what scholars call a pseudepigraphical book. Uh, it's a book attributed to someone who didn't actually write it, right? Uh, this book is, by the way, uh, not part of the Apocrypha. Uh, if you've studied the Apocrypha before, it's the, the, some of the literature that was collected between the Old and New Testaments. Uh, they're found typically in, in Catholic Bibles or Greek, Greek Orthodox Bibles. And yet, this writing was, was part of a uh, writing that was collected around the sub-apostolic era. And it was very popular in this day. And it was read probably in many different places in, in Jude's time, but it was never actually made canon. It's not, it's not a biblical book. And it's interesting that Jude quotes this because he's quoting probably from a book that these false teachers were using. And, and that's an interesting take for us. That we don't need to be afraid of the material of other false teachers. And we can actually use that material to point people back to Christ because it's going to fall apart under scrutiny. So grab your Qurans, grab your Book of Mormons, grab your JW Bible. And when they come to have a conversation with you, use it. Learn it. Know it. Not to hide it in your heart like Scripture, but because as you address it with them, the truth will arise. The truth will come out. And Jude is doing that exact same thing. He's appealing to this this book of Enoch, saying, look, this is what you guys are standing on, and it still doesn't work. He could have used dozens of passages from the Old Testament to make his point. And the point is that regardless of what you're teaching, God is the one who will judge it. That at some point, you will stand before God and give an account for what you have te- taught to God's people. So what have we to worry? We don't need to be threatened by those books, by that material, because God will condemn it in His time. There is universal judgment that will happen one day. And God is going to bring to account every evil deed. And then he gives us yet more 
characteristics of these false teachers in verse 16. He says, They are grumblers, fault finders, following after their own lusts, speaking arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But he reminds us that God is going to judge them. It's interesting to me that Jude ends this section of his letter by saying that God is going to judge false teachers. And yet so often, what is it that false teachers are denying? The judgment of God. Jude is giving us great comfort because as we contend, as we contend for the truth, we don't have to worry about being the ones who bring judgment. We can wait and lean on the God who promises to do that. That He will ultimately set things right. We don't have to worry because we serve a just God. So beloved, believe the truth. Be discerning and examine the lives of those who are teaching you when they make these strange and outlandish claims, when they're taking you to places that are outside of God's word. And remember that God's grace is always producing in our lives faith, humility, and holiness. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word reminds us that we are called to be contenders, to get into the ring and do battle with those who would stand against you. And yet, Lord, we recognize that we don't have to be the ones who bring ultimate judgment down, Lord, that you will do that. And so we wait patiently. And we ask that in that season, as we wait, that you would grow in us faith, humility, and holiness. That we would learn to be a people who have been purchased by, by your blood on Calvary. That we would rest in the fact that we can be your servants, called, beloved, and kept for you. And Lord, we know your plan is ultimately perfect. And we need not fear as we look around at all the chaos in this world and throw up our hands and say, where are you, Lord? Because we know you have a time and a place and a purpose for all things. And you are good. So Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that you're patient with us. And we thank you that we are a people for your own possession, called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And it's in your precious name we say, Amen.